Good morning. What is it that determines if an idea is invalid and should be rejected? Uh, Sometimes it's obvious that something is false. The sky is red. Uh, Two plus two equals five. The New England Patriots always play by the rules. Just smashing idols this morning. (laughs) Many times we invalidate ideas before even considering them on the basis of their age and because popular opinion is against them. You'll hear people say things like, oh, that's so outdated. Uh, This is the 21st century. I want to be on the right side of history. And these statements reveal certain assumptions that maybe you didn't even know that you had. That what is newer must be truer. That we know better than those who came before us. And that our culture and our ideas must be correct over and against the ideas from previous cultures simply because we are the latest word on the subject. Uh, Well, C.S. Lewis labeled this phenomenon as chronological snobbery. It's a great term. And he defined it as this. He called it the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. Of course, as many of you realize, our culture does not have the last word. In 200 years, if Christ has not yet returned, students of history will look back at our own day and laugh about all sorts of ridiculous things that we believe. If history is any guide, then the ideas which will seem laughable in the future are precisely those ideas which are not open for debate today. You see, our culture has established an orthodox position on these ideas, and any deviation from the orthodoxy is punished severely. There's no room for debate. And this orthodoxy covers topics of sexuality and gender, gender roles and marriage, marriage roles, and the sanctity of every human life. Well, as we turn to God's Word this morning, we recognize that it challenges our cultural assumptions. And wherever God's word has been preached across thousands of years and many different cultures and many different geographical locations, God's word, do you realize, has never been in complete alignment with any culture, including our own. And so we shouldn't be surprised if God's word challenges us and our assumptions or a prevailing ideology of our day. The Babylon Bee, a satirical website, gets this as they recently ran an article with the headline, Stubborn God Still Refusing to Change with the Times. (laughs) You say, well, Pastor, am I really supposed to take and trust this 2,000-year-old book when the mainstream culture is saying that these ideas 
are only held by Neanderthals? What do you think I'm going to say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> As Ephesians has reminded us repeatedly, God's word is always relevant for you, especially when it challenges our assumptions, because it is actually far older than 2,000 years. As Paul reminds us back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, his plan of redemption and his works of grace are eternally old, which means that they're also eternally new. So let's read our text this morning, and we'll pray and dive in. We'll pick up in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you that you are God and we are not. Father, we make a mistake when we assume that you are just like us. But you are so much greater and so much wiser, so much more powerful and perfectly holy and good and righteous. Heavenly Father, particularly as we take on uh, what many see as controversial this morning, I pray that you would empower me by your spirit to speak only your truth, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that rejoice in your good design. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning, I would like to begin at the end of our passage, in verse 31, uh, because it is here at the end of our passage this morning that Paul explains to us what God's intended purpose for marriage is. And once we understand this purpose, then the specific commands for husbands and wives will make much more sense. Uh, in verse 31, you'll notice that Paul quotes from Genesis 2, verse 24, as Jesus often quoted from it. Uh, because it is there that God created the institution of marriage. What is marriage? 
right there in Genesis. It is when a husband or a man leaves father and mother behind and cleaves to his wife, where they become, uh, he cleaves to his wife, and those who used to be two separate individuals from two separate families now become one flesh and one new family. Paul calls marriage a profound mystery. And when he uses that word mystery, he's not saying that it's something which is really, really hard to figure out, although it can feel that way sometimes. He's talking about something which is impossible to figure out unless God reveals it to us. If we remember back in chapter 3, Paul said the same thing about the inclusion of the Gentiles in 3 verses 4 to 6. That that was a mystery now revealed that the Gentiles formerly outside of the people of God are now co-heirs with believing Jews in this new temple of God called the church. Well, here he says that marriage was created to reflect the loving relationship between Christ and the church. So it's an illustration. Just as uh, we... When we take communion, uh, it is a picture of the sacrifice which Christ made for the church. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, I just want to be really clear about this. He's saying that God created marriage to help us understand the relationship between Christ and the church. He's not saying the other way around. He's taking us back to chapter 1, back to eternity past in the covenant of redemption, before the foundation of the earth, as God the Father was planning and preparing to give a people to God the Son as his bride. That at this time, God, looking forward into all of history and all that he was going to do, created marriage based upon the blueprint of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Marriage was created to reflect a much greater reality, the relationship between Christ and his church. And as marriage existed for many, many years before Christ even came, then it makes sense that that true mystery could not be revealed until the coming of Christ. Now, this has many implications. I'm just going to give you three before we move on. Uh, Number one, this means that God planned marriage with an eternal perspective. Uh, Even as societal norms and customs change, God's plan doesn't. Because he saw the end from the beginning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Secondly, This means that your marriage, if you are married, is bigger than you and your spouse. Yes, marriage should be wonderful. Yes, it should be enjoyable. It is the ideal way to raise children. And yes, it stabilizes society. But ultimately, your marriage is designed to bring glory to God in the way that it reflects the love of Christ. Third, This means that if God created marriage for a purpose, then we don't mess with his design. We don't try to change marriage and fit it to the spirit of our age. 
It means that if he's given us specific instructions for how to do marriage, then we take him seriously. And it means that we recognize that even, even when it is biblically justified, and there are cases, divorce is always a tragedy. Because it is the division of that one flesh, and it doesn't reflect the reality of the eternal commitment of Christ to his church. Well, having established the purpose of marriage, let's go back to verse 21, and we're going to consider the specific instructions for wives and husbands. So go back to 21. We're starting a uh, point to a wife's job in marriage. Uh, Two weeks ago, we considered the last of our walking commands. Uh, In response to the gospel, Christians have been called to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And this means that we walk in unity and in holiness and in light. Uh, Two weeks ago, we saw that we're to walk in wisdom, to walk as those who have, verse 18, been filled by the Spirit of God. Well, this week continues that. um, But verse 21 acts as a kind of transition between one section and the next. So let's pick up. And verse 19, uh, just to get a little bit of background. He says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in this verse... Uh, Walking in spirit-filled wisdom is transitioning from the corporate worship setting and it's moving into the Christian household. Uh, Some have interpreted verse 21 to mean that every individual Christian must submit to each and every other individual Christian. Now, while we can agree that Christians should set aside their preferences to love their brothers and sisters in Christ... I don't think this text is teaching mutual submission. And when you consider what submission actually means, you realize that's practically infeasible. If you want more detail on why, I can get into the details with you afterwards. Rather, verse 21 is introducing the idea that Christians are called to submit to one another. And then Paul gives three examples outside of the normal gathering of the church to show what that submission looks like. Today, in verses 22 to 33, we see within the home between a husband and wife. The second way is in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, we see how it works itself out between children and parents. And then lastly, between bond servants and masters in chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. All right, so let's look at verse 22. The apostle here directly addresses wives. And the command is this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now this says that each wife should submit to her own husband, not any other husbands. (laughs) It also doesn't say that all women should submit to all men. This is narrow in focus. This is within Christian 
marriage. Okay, so what does the word submit mean? A lot of people uh, get up in arms about this word, and it's unnecessary. The word submit just means submit. (laughs) 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 To submit is to voluntarily place oneself under the authority of someone else. It's to voluntarily place oneself under the authority of someone else. It is a synonym with obedience. And what we find, which is very interesting, is that if you consider the New Testament as a whole and the way this word is used, you find that actually all Christians, including men and pastors, are called to submit. No one gets around this. And I just want to offer a few examples. Let's look at Luke 2.51 on the screen. This is the boy Jesus leaving the temple with his parents after they find him. It says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was, same word, submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, ladies, I understand our cultural assumptions If you think that it is demeaning to submit to your husband, I just want to point out that the eternal Son of God here is submitting to people that he created. (laughs) And Jesus also submitted to the ruling authorities, to the Roman government, which he knew would ultimately crucify him on the cross. And he told his followers to pay taxes. So let's look at Romans 13, 1. Another form of submission. Uh, Paul says, let every person, again, same word in the Greek, be subject, you could put submit there, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So all Christians are called to submit to the governing authorities in their life. Let's look at the next one, James 4, 7. This is probably the most obvious one that we all recognize already. James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So James is saying, of course, as God's creation, we submit to our creator. We obey our creator. And last example, 1 Peter 5.5. He says this, likewise, Likewise, you who are younger, same word, be subject or submit to the elders. So here he's saying that those of you, it's not just younger people there. He's saying anyone who is a non-elder should submit to the elders. And of course, as we pursue uh, getting elders here as a church, even I, who currently have one vote as an elder, (laughs) the only vote, Uh, As we bring in more elders, if I present something and we take a vote and the other elders vote against it, I will have to submit myself to the other people who voted against it. And even now I submit to my boss at Nets. And so we see in each of these cases, all Christians are called to submit to some kind of authority. Now I recognize that in our day, authority might as well be a four-letter word. As Americans, we are allergic to authority. 
Of course, it was the abuse of authority which led uh, to a bunch of angry Bostoners dumping tea into the haba and overthrowing the British. I've been working on that. We don't like any authority except for our self-autonomy. But brothers and sisters, we need to be able to establish the difference between godly authority and authoritarianism. There is a difference. Not every exercise of authority is the latter. As Christians, we recognize that authority doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be, but it also can be used well. As we saw in Romans 13.1, God actually delegates his ultimate authority to lesser and imperfect humans with lesser authority. He said, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, we'll get into this more when we turn to husbands, but when authority is used well, it blesses those who are under it. And if you stop to think about it, if there were no authorities, if there were no hierarchy in society, we would have anarchy. Well, as we turn back to our text this morning, we can say this about authority within marriage. That a husband and wife are equal in dignity and value, that they are equally beloved by God, but that within marriage there is an inequality of authority. This is what the word submit shows us, that there is an inequality of authority. Lastly, husbands, I want to tell you that this is not commanding you to make your wife submissive. God has not given you the right to enforce this. Submission is always voluntary. It must always be given freely. It cannot be taken. And so wives, God's word says that you are to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? Because God created marriage to reflect the loving relationship between Christ and the church. Because verse 23, look there, the husband is the head of the wife. And this reflects the greater reality that Christ is the head of the church, the savior of the body. So wives, he's again comparing marriage to Christ and the church. And and the church recognizes Christ's authority. The church always submits to Christ because he's God and because he is our head. Wives, verse 24, draws that same parallel for your marriage. Your husband is your head. In the marriage, he represents Christ and you represent the church. As the church submits to Christ, which is a good thing, so also you wives should submit to your own husbands, which is also a good thing. So consider this question with me. Is there any area which the church is not called to submit to her head? Christ. No. So Paul writes, verse 24, likewise, that wives are called to submit in everything. It's a broad term there. This means that if you can't come to an agreement, your husband makes the final call, and you don't hold that against him. That you're called to submit to him, even if you don't agree, especially 
if you don't agree. That's what submission is. Now, husbands, you would be incredibly foolish not to try to come to an agreement with your wife, not to take her opinion and value it incredibly highly. And in fact, there are probably areas in which your wife has greater skills and greater aptitude than you do. And you would be wise to delegate certain areas to her. But at the end of the day, there should be a clear head of your marriage. Now, ladies, God is not saying that your husband is infallible. Can I get an amen? If he's like me, he probably thinks he is. But you and I know that's not true. I am often confident and wrong. Your husband is imperfect. He will make mistakes. He will sin and he will sin against you and have to seek your forgiveness. But that doesn't change your call in marriage. But let me say this. God does delegate authority to human authorities. But a Christian is never, and a wife is never, called to submit to anything sinful. Anything against God's law. If you remember when the apostles were preaching the word of God in Jerusalem, the God-given authorities came to them and said, hey, you need to stop this or we're going to beat you and throw you in prison. And they said, no, we must obey God rather than man. There is a higher authority. You never have to go against God for any other authority. Now, all the single ladies, all the single ladies... Listen, you are not called to submit to a boyfriend. (laughs) If he wants that, he'll have to put a ring on it. (laughs) If you are looking to be married, my advice is to seek the kind of man to whom you would want to submit. A godly, humble servant leader. I'm not talking about perfection, or Lord knows none of us men would have ever been married. But somebody who is growing in Christ. I would tell you to look at his life. Is he submitting? Does he submit to God? Or does he live however he wants? Does he submit to the elders of his church? Or does he think he doesn't need oversight? Does he submit to the law of the land or does he believe he's above the law? Does he submit to his boss at work or does he consistently go behind his or her back? I would not be interested in submitting to any man in marriage who was not also submitting to authority. And for more reasons than just that. If he asks you, <laughs> if he asks you why you're not interested, tell him. Tell him why. It'll be good for him. It'll be a humbling process. And this means single men. If you want to be married, you should pursue Christ and become the kind of godly man who a woman would want to marry and submit to. 
Uh, now, wives, if you are married to a non-Christian, this still applies. You are to submit so long as it is not sinful. Right, let's look at 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2. Peter says, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject, same verb there, be subject to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Wives, your conduct toward your husband is a witness to Christ. And of course, this is a command for those who are already married to non-Christians. Uh, if you're single, there is never a reason to marry somebody who is not in the faith. Wives, you have a difficult job in marriage. Submitting to imperfect husbands. If you do this, you will be going against the tide of our culture. But as I will argue in our next point, as hard as your job in marriage is, the husband has an even harder job. Paul, in the Greek, only gives 47 words of instruction to wives. If you look at the next paragraph, you'll notice he gives husbands 143 because they too are called to countercultural conduct in marriage. So let's keep reading and see how. Pick up with me in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Uh, many men, when they read verses 21 to 24, thinks it gives them the right to become little Vladimir Putins, totalitarians of their home, uh, emperors of dom domestic life. And the reason they think this is because they haven't read the next five verses. Husbands, you have been given authority by God to lead your home. But the sign of authority used well is that it blesses those under it. The sign of authority used well is that it blesses those under it. You are not to use your authority to serve yourself. You are to use your God-given authority to bless those under your care. And you already know this about authority. Everybody wants the good boss. The boss who treats his employees well and rewards diligence, doesn't tolerate laziness and speaks the truth. This boss creates a healthy company culture. And every citizen wants a wise and a just ruler. Because when a ruler uses his authority for the good of those he leads... When that ruler prioritizes truth and goodness and justice, 
then the people under that ruler thrive. Now, in the first century when this is written, a husband's leadership of his family would not have been controversial. Wives were expected to follow their husband's lead. A husband, however, whether Jewish or Greek or Roman, could pretty much do whatever he wanted. A wife was useful for producing heirs, but they paid little attention to their wives otherwise. And they regularly sought other women outside of marriage. And so in this day, this admonition to loving your wife sacrificially would have been countercultural. And as we dig into it, we'll see it still is. So, how then is a husband to use his authority in marriage? Look at verse 25. Husband, love your wives. In what way? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, do you realize what that entails? Do you realize how radical a statement that is? Love your wife like Christ loved the church. How? He gave himself up for her. Jesus sacrificed himself to save the church. He loved us when we were unlovable. We were condemned before God Almighty, standing before his judgment seat. And Christ came and took our place. He said, I will take their punishment and they can have my righteousness. He bore the wrath we deserved and he gave us his perfect record of righteousness. Now if you're here today and you're curious what it is that we Christians are all about, it is this, it's, it's Jesus. He's our Lord, he's our Savior. And he's not petty like the gods that we humans come up with. He has absolute authority and what did he do with it? He laid down his own life out of love for his bride, the church. That's a God I want to bow the knee to. If you want to know more of what it means to follow Christ, I'd love to talk to you. So, husbands, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Paul is not saying that you are Jesus But he's saying that your love for your wife should look like the love that Jesus has for his church. Verse 25 makes it abundantly clear that you will have to make sacrifices for the good of your wife. That you will have to put yourself second. The greatest sacrifice was Christ's substitutionary death, which means that your life And every sacrifice less than that is on the table for how you love your bride. This means that you may have to make sacrifices with your career to love your wife well. This means you may have to make sacrifices with your social life and your recreation to love your wife well. Because she is more important than your career and your recreation. Because you have a higher calling in marriage. Your marriage is to reflect Christ, and you are reflecting the love of Christ. And when you decided to get married, whether you knew this or not, you committed to putting your wife ahead of yourself. Now the wonderful thing about the love of Christ 
is that it wasn't just a one-time thing on the cross. Jesus loves us throughout our lives and through all eternity. And husband, this means that your love for your wife is also a lifelong commitment. If Christ died to forgive and justify the church, then he lives to sanctify her. The basic idea of verses 27 and 26, 26 and 27, is this from Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, forgiving you of your sins and making you righteous was just the beginning of Christ's work in your life. The rest of our days are a process called sanctification, where God makes us more and more like Jesus, where God makes us holy. Now, here at this church, I always try to be clear about the ravages and the consequences of sin, and they are terrible. But as Christians, we need to be equally clear about the love of Jesus Christ. He dies for the church. He sanctifies the church. Verse 26, he cleansed her by the washing of water, baptism, and the word of the gospel. And one day, he will present the church to himself in splendor or glory as his bride. Husbands, I want you to think back to your own wedding day. How beautiful your wife was as she walked down the aisle. How excited you were to finally be with her and to take her off the market. (laughs) To experience the love and the intimacy that only a lifelong commitment can bring. (laughs) Well, brothers and sisters, one day Christ will present his church to himself and she will be a glorious bride. Do you realize this church that Christ delights in you? Christ loves you? God the Father chose you out of all the people on earth? Not because you're something special, but because he loves you. You say, well, pastor, I'm I'm not without spot or wrinkle, as the text says. You could say I've got some pretty prominent warts. That may be true. And if you spend enough time in this church or in any church, you'll notice a whole lot of imperfections and a whole lot of sin. You see, the church is loved right now, but it'd be hard to say we're glorious right now. But that just makes the love of Christ all the more incredible. You see, he loves us as we are, but he also loves us enough not to leave us as we are. His love transforms the church. Even as we're aging physically, Christ is making us more beautiful spiritually. That's sanctification. And one day he'll complete the process. He will present his glorious bride to himself spotless and without wrinkle. She will be holy and blameless because her husband Christ made her that way. Brothers and sisters, if you're prone to self-doubt, if you think you're unlovable, or that God can't love someone like you, listen. If you've been united to Christ in faith, he delights over you like a husband delights over his bride on his wedding day. 
and he will make you glorious. Husbands, do you see what an incredible standard this is? Do you lead your wife in such a way that she can grow spiritually? Do you take the initiative to pray together as a couple and as a family? Do you read the word together? Do you prioritize the regular gathering of the church on Sunday and midweek Bible study? Do you lead your family to serve the body of Christ? This is the kind of leadership God is asking of you. Well, in the first few verses, if a husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church, in verse 28 to 30, he's also to love his wife as he loves himself. He says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Whoever loves his wife loves himself. Remember, a man leaves his mother and father and holds fast or cleaves to his wife. The the two become one flesh. So if you love your wife, you are loving yourself. Paul continues, no one ever hated his own flesh. Generally, we try to take care of ourselves, and that is a good thing. No one has to teach us to love ourselves. As a pastor, I can say it comes naturally for most people. He says, we nourish and we cherish our own bodies, just as he points out, Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Now, brothers, these words here, nourish and cherish, in the Greek, they carry with them connotation of physical nurture and emotional warmth. This means that you are caring for your bride physically, and that you are emotionally available to her. That last one can be tricky for us. If you're like me, then you might have the emotional range of an ostrich. You can be happy, you can be angry, or you can be hungry. I'm not sure if that last one is an emotion. (laughs) It doesn't matter. We've got to figure out how we can nourish and cherish our wives to be emotionally available to them because that's what Christ does for the church. Now, one of my favorite popular theologians, Peter Parker, has said that with great power comes great responsibility. Husbands, God has made you shepherd of your family. He has given you authority and he expects you to use it for the good of those under your care. But always remember, husbands, that you are shepherding his sheep. Please take, please take the example of Christ, the good shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep. Don't take the example of the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests who fed off of the sheep. Those who use their authority to benefit themselves. Remember the parable of the wicked tenants in Mark 12. What does God do with the tenants who refused to give the produce? He destroys them and gives the vineyard to others. I want to close with a prophecy from Ezekiel 34. You can turn there. Ezekiel 34. And this is a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel of that day. And husbands, yes, I am aware that you are not a shepherd of Israel. And yet, 
the shepherding principle for those shepherds and every shepherd still stands. So pick up with me in Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, O shepherds of Israel, you who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves, but I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. In verse 11, we see the text becomes a messianic prophecy of Christ. Consider the love of God in these verses. The care he has for his sheep. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines. And in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And there they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God loves his sheep. Husbands, you have been given authority. And I sure do hope you use it. And that you don't abdicate your authority out of cowardice and fear. But always remember that you are yourself under a greater authority. 
and he takes care of his sheep. As you lead, do so with the heart of the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who seeks them out and brings them into good pasture. I shouldn't have closed my Bible. I've got to finish with verse 33. Look at verse 33 with me, and we'll close. Paul's final command. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Maybe you're here today, and you think that your husband stinks at servant leadership and loving you sacrificially. Maybe you're a husband here today and you think that your wife stinks at submitting to you and following your leadership. Let me ask you both this. Are you praying for your spouse? Are you praying with your spouse? If you are, then take this last verse as your game plan. And realize that the sanctification process takes time. And I'm not talking weeks or months. I'm talking years where God makes us more like Christ. But take this as your game plan. Wives, submit to and respect your husbands as to the Lord. And you may find that he starts to become more and more loving and sacrificial toward you. Husbands, get over yourselves and start loving your wife and leading her spiritually. And you may find that you become the kind of man who she would want to submit to. No marriage in this life is perfect. Meredith and I can both attest that ours is far from perfect. But when we follow this eternal blueprint for marriage, we are exercising trust in God, saying that he knows better than we do, and we're bringing him glory in the process. Let's pray.